From the University of Notre Dame, I'm Andy Fuller. Welcome to Notre Dame Stories. On March 23rd, Ukrainian Metropolitan Archbishop Boris Gudziak was announced as the keynote speaker at Notre Dame's 177th commencement ceremony coming up in May. Ten days earlier, Archbishop Gudziak sat down for an interview for the Henry Nowen Now and Then podcast produced by the Henry Nowen Society. By way of context, Henry Nowen was a Dutch-born Catholic priest who, among other things, taught psychology at Notre Dame for a time. The society that bears his name is dedicated to advancing Nowen's spiritual vision. In this podcast episode, host and Nowen Society Executive Director Karen Pascal speaks with Archbishop Gudziak about his background and his perspective on the ongoing war in Ukraine. I'll be back to close out the show, but for now, here's Karen. Well, I know that you today are the Archbishop Metropolitan of the Ukrainian Catholic Archparchy of Philadelphia. Today, you represent Ukrainians in the United States, but you're someone who has spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Maybe you want to give us a little bit of your history and then give us a sense of, of an update from your perspective of what's happening. It is an incredible time we're living through. Our hearts are breaking, but I can't imagine more so than what you might be feeling. My story is kind of uh, meandering and uh, complex. I was born uh, in Syracuse, not too far away from where you are, um, in New York State. And uh, I met the man who was the head of the illegal Ukrainian Catholic Church. He was exiled in 63. I met him as a 7-year-old in 1968. And then after college, I went to live and study with him in, in Rome, and I became a seminarian for Ukraine in 1980 when, you know, it was like becoming a seminarian for a diocese on Mars. You couldn't go there. But after three years in Rome, I, I went to Harvard uh, to do graduate work. I was kind of a slow learner, so I was in the program for nine years. And the first of those two years coincided with Henry's two years at Harvard. And uh, I had written, read a book in Rome uh, by this author. I was very impressed by it. I thought it was called, you know, his last name was Nguyen. And I, when I remember reading it, I, cause he was at Yale. It said he's at Yale. I remember reading it and saying, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was somebody like this at Harvard since I was already going there. And lo and behold, after one semester, I discovered that this Henry Nguyen guy is uh, at the divinity school. So I took his course I started going to the daily prayer at his house, and those that of you who are familiar with Henry's life, you know, that was kind of the foundation of, of his life and of his day. We had half an hour of um, the office, then half an hour of silence, and then the Mass, the Eucharist. There were about 10 of us that were daily regulars. So we got to know each other basically in prayer and silence. Uh, and that went on uh, over the first two years. Uh, Henry would spend one semester traveling, but it was the, the spring semester of uh, 84 and 85 uh, that we were together, that I was kind of in his circle. And um, it took me a while to finish my doctorate. Uh, in 92, I went to Ukraine. But in the interim, Henry moved to the last daybreak, yeah, and I started coming there, and then when I moved to Ukraine, 
at the invitation of Zanya Kushpata, who was at daybreak, and myself, Henry came twice uh, to Ukraine, and he wrote a diary about it, which uh, the original hasn't been published, but the Ukrainian uh, emerged, uh, was published uh, in the fall on the occasion of Henry's, the 25th anniversary of Henry's date. And uh, immediately after the publication, I had a chance to present it in New York City to uh, President Zelensky. Because um, it really is a good snapshot of what post-Soviet Ukraine was like in, in the early 90s, and mid-90s. Uh, so, yes, um, uh, Henry had an incredible impact on, on my life. Uh, I pray for him, you know, daily, and he, he's with me. And uh, he, you know, people in Ukraine, not too many knew him directly, but those that can who see, you know, how I live, how I speak, I think might be able to identify uh, how Henry influenced uh, my spirituality and uh, and the way I try to communicate. You know, it's it's interesting because for those of us in North America, and probably for those of us who are not a part of the Ukrainian uh, Greek Catholic Church, we're not really familiar with that reality that your church was illegal in Russia for almost 43 years, from 1946 to 1989. Correct, yeah. Uh, it was an underground church. It was a church in the catacombs. Tell us a little bit about that and what happened. How did it come out? Sure. Well, you know, this is very pertinent to what is happening today. In the last 250 years, every time there's been a Russian occupation of a part of Ukraine where the Ukrainian Catholic Church ministered, the church gets strangled. It can take a year or two, sometimes a decade or, or two decades. But sooner or later, the church is strangled and even rendered illegal. Uh, and from, as you said, from 46 to 89, it was uh, illegal. And it actually was the biggest illegal church in the world. And it seemed like they were, you know, extinguishing it because out of 3,000 priests who were there before the war in 39, for about 4 million faithful, um, there were only 300 left by 1985. This is the time when I was introducing Henry to, to, this, to this world, and he took great interest in it. Uh, and now we, we're back at 3,000 priests. Uh, we have kind of 800 seminarians for the global community of about 5 million Ukrainian Catholics. Uh, so this is a sign of miracles of, of the power of prayer, of uh, you know the the grace that comes from the sacrifice of people who, who give their lives with the ultimate love. They, they they sacrifice their lives for their brothers and sisters, and that's why during this crisis we, um, as a church in North America, are asking people to do three things: to pray because prayer moves mountains, uh, to be well-informed, and to help uh, where they can. Well, it's one of the reasons we think it's so important that we get a chance to talk with you today, because I would like to echo those words to our audience for Henry Now and Now and Then, because I know Henry would be wanting more than anything to be alongside you and helping in all of this. So I would echo that we want to uh, pray, we want to be well-informed about what's going on, 
and do whatever we can to help. And today, um, we will put links to anything that you are recommending along with what we can what we would like to put out there. You know, here, I'm based in Canada. In Canada, we have the largest expatriate uh, community from the Ukraine. Over a million people have come to Canada from the Ukraine. So we have a great love for our Ukrainian Canadians who have added so much to Canada over the years. So our hearts are, are, are one with you in that. But let me just at this point, really ask you maybe to give us a little bit of an understanding. I, I mean, I have to admit I was ignorant about and it, it really hit me this whole business about how Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church plays a part in Putin's plans. I think it would be interesting for us to understand because it sounds like the head of the Russian Orthodox Church just wants to take back everything in Ukraine. That's part of the, the vision, isn't it? Well, yeah, it, it's it's a sad story. You know, uh, all Christian churches are revisiting their history and repenting about their role in uh, colonialism and empire building. Um, Jesus, you know, wasn't about building um, empires and uh, the kingdom of God is not a colonizing um, phenomenon. It's a community of love, of service, of, of going down instead of, you know, building yourself up, uh, you know, on thrones uh, that are supported by nuclear missiles. Um, so what is what is happening um, is that uh, 16 days ago on February 24th, um, Putin escalated a war that had actually been going on for eight years. 14,000 people had been killed and, it, you know, it really devastated Ukraine's economy. Uh, the purchase power of the Ukrainian currency already in 214 lost two thirds of its value. So people lost two thirds of their savings and, you know, the, the, the value of their salaries went down uh, by two thirds. And the country, he thought the country would collapse. He was bleeding it by waging the war in Donbass and by annexing Crimea. Um, well, it didn't collapse because uh, the Ukraine Ukraine had in 1991 900,000 troops when it came out of the Soviet Union, but it was not interested in war. And by 2014, there were 6,000 battle-ready troops left. 6,000 out of 900,000. Wow. It also was uh, one of the great um, holders of nuclear weapons. In the early 90s, Ukraine had the third biggest nuclear arsenal after the U.S. and Russia. Ukraine had more nukes than China, France, and uh, the United Kingdom put together. And in 1994, Ukraine unilaterally became the first country to disarm its uh, nuclear arsenal, receiving in exchange territorial guarantees from Russia, France, United Kingdom, and the United States. And, um, you know, the country, the people wanted to go forward. There were 15 million people killed through the world wars and the totalitarian regimes. Uh, of course, first and foremost, the Soviets, uh, the communists, but also the Nazis. Uh, and people didn't want to go back to that totalitarianism. They wanted democracy. They wanted transparency. Uh, when they had uh, 
presidents who did not uh, hold on to these principles, hold to these principles, they voted them out. Uh, there's been six presidents uh, in the 30 years of Ukrainian independence. In Russia, never in Russian history has a president been voted out of office. And the real reason for this, uh, the first war in 2014, and now its escalation in making it you know, really a comprehensive war, uh, is not the, the, the danger of NATO. NATO is a defensive alliance, and it, it had no business or interest or desire to in, in, encroach on Russian territory. I, I just described to you how Ukraine demilitarized. Ukraine was not a military threat, but it had a, it had a very dangerous disease for Russia. It had the virus of democracy. Uh, as Putin built up his uh, autocratic, you know, oligarchic kleptocracy, where there's a few people that can basically rob the country. These are these oligarchs that are now being sanctioned, but who have been, you know, welcomed in, in, in many countries. Their money, you know, filled investment accounts in, in, in London, uh, banks in Switzerland. It was spent, you know, in... Uh, Paris perfume shops and, uh, and the casinos of Monaco, you know, for all these years, laundering this ill, ill, uh, ill-gotten uh, money. What, what uh, democracy next door? What a free press, uh, freedom of religion, uh, a vibrant civic society in Ukraine. Uh, threatened uh, Russia with is that this could undermine the the dictatorship that uh, Putin uh, was building. And so he decided to crush it. Um, There were different attempts. I mean, already 15 years ago, he told George Bush, Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, He said 17 years ago that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And he wants to reverse the collapse of the empire. He wants to return to empire. Uh, And Ukraine has, you know, over 40 million people. It builds the biggest airplane in the world. After the U.S. and India, it's the third greatest outsourcer of computer programming. Wow. It's got 200 universities. It produces 11% of the world's wheat around 50% of the world's uh, sunflower oil. It's got some of the most fertile land in the world. It was called, you know, for, for, for in the 20th century, the breadbasket of Europe. Hitler, Hitler actually took train cars of Ukrainian land for soil and tried to, you know, transplant it to Germany. So Putin, uh, you know, has had... Uh, uh, a long-term uh, desire to quash democracy in Ukraine, quash this virus of freedom, and to actually uh, reconquer uh, the country for the new Russian Empire. And we're seeing, you know, the the aggressive, brutal uh, manner in which he is trying to do it right now. One of the characters that has risen to the very top in the midst of this is President Zelensky. Just that sense that sometimes there's a moment you're called into history 
and you stand up because you're standing up for the right thing. And it, it's been inspiring. I'm sure that's inspired others. Uh, but you're right. What comes back is this sense of character within the country, within the people who've made a choice that they want a free life. They want to have the kind of freedoms and democracies and, and values that that are better than and are richer than uh, anything that is being offered by uh, Putin in in the Russian vision. Hopefully, you know, uh, I think there'll be a major transformation. Uh, there are very difficult days ahead. It's not inconceivable that uh, Putin could turn to, for example, tactical nuclear weapons. Yeah. To knock out Zelensky, you know, hit a bomb that uh, obliterates just one tenth of the city, the yeah. government quarter. Yeah. Um, he's he's already kind of activated the preparedness of his nuclear arsenal, and he's war- uh, threatened that, you know, anybody that opposes us uh, will see a reaction that the world has never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, he's already done things that nobody. You know, nobody expected the annexation of Crimea, you know, the the war in in the Donbass. And now, you know, yesterday, uh, the maternity ward in Mm. uh, maternity hospital in Mariupol uh, was was uh, targeted. And the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, admitted they were targeting it because he said there were troops there. But there were no troops there. Yeah. He said there were no, no, you know, women there. But you see the pictures of the pregnant women being carried out on stretchers. Yeah. The mayor of the city said that 1,300 people were, have been killed in, in these two weeks in that city. It's totally surrounded. There's no electricity. Uh, there's a lack of water and food. Uh, people are dying. You know, a child died of dehydration. The president pointed out that's probably the first time since the Nazi occupation of Ukraine that something like that happened. Um, and uh, people are dying of starvation. They're, it's cold. Uh, uh, the humanitarian corridors that were agreed upon through negotiations in previous days were shot upon. And they became, as the head of our church, as Beatitudes of the Slaushochuk said, they became quarters of death. So th- these are warm co- war crimes. The, this is this is state-sponsored terrorism. Uh, the idea is to generate as many refugees as possible, empty the cities of women and children so you can more freely kill the men, oh. uh, get the people out so the destruction in the the slaughter of women and children will not be, you know, kind of a, a used against you. But also the goal is to create a humanitarian refugee crisis in Europe. Yeah. Uh, there could be as many as 10 million refugees. I mean, yeah. when 1 million Syrians came into Germany, this shook up the whole society and the political system. If 10 million people pour into uh, the European Union, the European Union will have great problems. And yeah. that's what Russia wants. Yeah. It's destabilizing. It's it's interesting. You know, earlier when you were talking about the humanitarian quarters, when Henry died, he had promised to come back to Ukraine and he was going to bring things that he thought were needed. And his brother Laurent Noun picked up that mantle and Henry Noun Sticking, which was the Henry Noun Society in the Netherlands has on a regular yearly, bi-yearly basis brought truckloads of supplies into Ukraine where it was needed most. 
and has supported the L'Arche movement that was there. I'm sure that you're familiar with Laurent because obviously Laurent was involved in getting that uh, diary of Henry Nouwen's uh, written, published, published yeah. yeah, which was really was really wonderful. So, in a sense, the very opposite of this uh, incredibly evil plan, incredibly evil and destructive plan. The opposite was, uh, you know, Christ's response in us is to love and to give and to pray and to believe and to be there present for our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Well, uh, Laurent, uh, you know, has become a good friend. Those who know him knows, uh, you know, you know, he, he, he you know, looks a little bit like Henry. And, uh-huh. uh, he talks very much like Henry. You know, his English sounds just like Henry's. Uh-huh. And um, he, 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 made over a hundred trips to Ukraine with big tractor trailers, uh, which he packed himself with a few friends with all kinds of things, computers and desks for schools and, you know, humanitarian things and things for psychiatric hospitals. Uh, And when I served as Bishop in Paris, uh, covering the Ukrainian Catholic parishes in France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Switzerland, Lauren's house was kind of a, a home away from home when I would be in the Netherlands. We would come in with our priests, seminarians, our, our, our choirs uh, for for services and for conferences. And, and Lauren, you know, loved us and welcomed us. And um, it, it uh, he's he's been an incredible uh, friend of Ukraine and, and uh, a personal friend and a friend of our church. Um, Laurent, you know, I, I think he'll be offended if I share this with you, wasn't too interested in what Henry was writing when <laughs> Henry was alive. And in fact, Henry told me, you know, my, my family, they're, they're really not too, too keen on, on my books and, you know, my, you know, the spirituality that I uh, care to share. But then he had a conversion, uh, or if you will, I mean, he discovered the depths of uh, what Henry was sharing. He discovered Jesus, uh, and um, he became a very practical apostle. Uh, Laudant would give me hell a lot because, you know, you say, you watch out. Are you really, you know, uh, mindful of all the poor around you? I was responsible for developing a university, so it was, you know, a, 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 an academic project. But, but uh, we did, under Henry's influence, from day one, because Henry was there just as we were doing the feasibility studies, the planning in 93, 94. We opened up in September uh, 94. Uh, we decided to build the, the, the school, the Ukrainian Catholic University, on two pillars, the two M's, the martyrs and the martyrs, marginalized. The martyrs were those who in the 20th century, you know, carried the faith through the totalitarian tunnel. And uh, they met the greatest challenge of the 20th century, which was kind of uh, the totalitarian attempt to crush uh, the human dignity of, 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 of the person. And we thought if we can look closely at that, uh, we can learn how to face challenges in the 21st century. So we did an oral history project interviewing 2000 of these people. And Henry met some of the people from the, the underground uh, when he visited during those two years. The other M are the marginalized. And uh, under, you know, the influence of Henry and uh, that relationship with Zanya Kushpata, we decided that 
the best way to address the trauma, the transgenerational trauma of the genocidal history that uh, the communists left was to introduce um, right into the heart of the university our friends with special needs. See, people who've been traumatized, uh, who've been violated, and who from their childhood are taught by their grandparents, you have to be careful of the other because the other is dangerous. The world out there is dangerous. You can get arrested. You can be sent to Siberia. You can be executed. You can lose your job for saying a prayer. You don't trust the other. So you put up, put, put on a mask, put up a facade, and build a wall. And you kind of peek out to see if that other person might not have it out for you, might not be an informant. It really breaks down trust, even in the family. And, you know, the, the archives now show that, you know, wives were informing on their husbands, husbands on their wives, neighbors, members of families, people at work that work together, you know, were, were conscripted to uh, provide information to the KGB, which, you know, was where Vladimir Putin worked. Uh, our friends with special needs, they help build trust. They break down those walls and facades and help us take on, down our masks. Because when you meet one of our friends, um, they basically, with all their being, ask one fundamental question. Can you love me? Do you love me? And uh, so we, we've invited um, our friends with handicaps to be tutor, tutors of human relations in the universe. They live in, this, in, you know, in the dormitory. They, they help in our cafeteria. They helped in my you know, office when I was a rector, uh, president of the university. Uh, they're part of our community. And I think it's the first university in, you know, in history that has placed the mentally handicapped at the heart of the identity of the university, not as a social project, but at the identity. So it's the martyrs and the marginalized. And that is what Henry brought me into and helped us, you know, kind of conceptualize. And uh, this university, you know, it has the highest incoming SAT scores of any university in Ukraine. So the most talented kids uh, come to this school. It's academically very competitive. But we want to make sure that our competition is not against you know, the, the Beatitudes, mm. that it's not, uh, it's a competition to build each other up, not to bring each other down. And in light of, you know, that gospel vision, this war is just completely devastating because it's killing, it's marauding, it's destroying. And it's, it's very sad that, you know, there are Christians who are publicly behind this war. You know, I am really struck by your phrase that tutors of human relations. I think that the Ukrainians right now are tutors of human relationships for the world in their in their sense that no, they will not give in to what is so so immoral and so dreadful and I'm really moved by that description of what's happening with your university martyrs and the marginalized. Karen, I want to ask you and uh, you know all uh, the listeners uh, that uh, you know are inspired by Henry's legacy uh, to be steadfast in in your prayer 
information and a support of Ukraine, not just this week or this month, because, you know, the, the world's focus on Ukraine is going to change. But the trauma that already has been inflicted, it might get much, much worse. Uh, Putin is announcing that he's not going to stop. He's going to conquer the whole country. And the only way he's going to do that is by reducing city after city to rubble. Uh, these, this country, these people are going to need the support of the world for, for a long time. Uh, so put, put the people in your, in your prayer and, uh, get the message out, get your friends, maybe to listen to our conversation. Um, there's a lot of disinformation there. There's, you know, the, the, the political extremes on the right and left have often been uh, funded by Putin, particularly in Europe, uh, you know, Madame Le Pen in France, uh, the right-wing uh, presidential candidate in the upcoming elections, her party has been publicly, openly funded uh, by by um, uh, money from from the Russian government. Uh, Brexit was something that was supported uh, by uh, Russian funding and Russian uh, disinformation. We see the you know elections in the U.S. and in other countries that are influenced. Yes. Uh, this is a global issue, and Ukrainians are the ones who are confronting it. And they're paying the dearest price for it. And I think they deserve the support of the world for a long time to come in the future. Boris, I thank you so very much for that word, that challenge. And we hear you. And we will continue to hear you. We will not let go. We will pray and we will be uh, your allies and the allies for Ukraine and not be silent and not be silent. That I commit to. And, and I know that those that are listening today will, will join me in that. Thank you. God bless you. And thank you for uh, keeping Henry's legacy. And I invite, uh, you know, all, all good friends and followers of Henry to come and visit a land where he found uh, inspiration and where he left so many fruitful seeds that have given life to um, ministries, not only for the handicapped, but through the handicapped to the country. There's a university built on the vision that Henry helped bring to Ukraine. Our sincere thanks to Karen Pascal and the Henry Nowen Society for sharing this podcast episode with us. You can find the full episode linked in our show notes. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour.